you can see the uh, the sermon title, Christ Alone is Head of the Church, and we're going to be focusing on verses 18 through 20. Now, why did the authors of the Westminster Confession feel the need to say this? Well, I hope you know as you've gone through the Confession together as a church, this is a historical document. And at the time of the Protestant Reformation and, and afterwards, really a big issue in the church was, who is the final authority of the church on earth? And of course, many in uh, Western civilization, at least, would say the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. And as the uh, authors of the Westminster Confession got together, uh, they disagreed. Now, you'll notice what they say. There is no other head of the church. So that not only rules out the Pope, that rules out any earthly individual, no matter who he or in this day and age she might proclaim to be. Only Christ can be the head of the church. Now, I'm not going to get into the historical stuff here this morning or all the arguments that the uh, the Catholic Church uses for why uh, the Pope uh, should be declared the head of the church. I think our passage here in Colossians kind of puts an end to that anyway. You'll notice if you uh, do a study of church history, sometimes really strange teachings come out and you look at the Bible and you think, how did they get that? I don't quite understand. And one of the uh, the beautiful things about the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession, is they give us a very helpful tool for interpreting Scripture. You interpret Scripture, and this is from chapter uh, 1 of the Confession, you interpret Scripture with other Scripture. You don't take one verse and build an entire teaching on one verse. You make sure that there are other Scriptures that you can bring in to support it. And if you have difficult passages, and there are difficult passages, you look for the clearer passages to help interpret the more difficult. And if you can only find one passage that maybe kind of sort of says something, but you can't find it anywhere else, well, some wise professors of mine said, you just tell your congregation, we don't really know for sure what this means, and you move on. And really, the way that the, uh, the Pope has been built into the head of the church is you have to look at one passage in Matthew's gospel and build an entire teaching on that. That's a dangerous thing to do. If that's the best you can do for a doctrine that you want to use to defend your position, uh, you're doing it wrong. That's the best I can tell you. But that's, that's enough on that. So, how do we know Christ is head of the church? Well, let's consider then what Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And really, verse 18 kind of makes it clear, right? And this is our first point. Only Christ is to be given preeminence. So when we talk about the church here on earth, who's to be exalted above all in your church? It's not to be your pastor. It's not to be an elder. It's not to be the wealthiest giver in the congregation who thinks that, hey, since I give more money, you know, I ought to have more sway on the decisions that are made. Nope, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says it very specifically here. 
verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Really, this could be the shortest sermon you ever hear. Christ is the head. It's not going to be the shortest sermon you ever hear. Sorry. But Jesus is the head. That's a position of authority. And there can only be one head. What would happen if there were two heads of the church? Which one gets the final say, right? Jesus is the head of the church. There's only one. And Paul will flesh this out in more detail in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about Christ is the head, and all of us are members of the body. And everybody here who is a member of the body has different roles to play. Some of you are the hands, some of you are the feet, some of you are other parts. None of you are the head. What's your role in the church? Well, here's an easy answer to that. It's not to be the head. Okay, now that we've got that taken care of, what's your role in the church? Well, there's all sorts of other positions you can play, right? There's, there's other parts, but you're not the head of the church. Christ has already taken that position. And that's what frustrated uh, the reformers so often as they were unpacking the scriptures and they're realizing, wait a minute, the, the, the Bishop of Rome is taking to himself an office that he has no right to take because Christ has that office. Well, how can he do that? And the answer is because that's what the church teaches and therefore it's right. Again, another danger signal. If that's your best argument because the church says so, be careful. Make sure that what the church says is actually grounded in the scriptures. For Paul, the issue is Jesus is the head of the church. Now, when he's writing to the Colossians here, He's not writing dealing with the Bishop of Rome, by the way. That was, that was a non-issue for the early church. But he is writing to a church, and you can read through the rest of Colossians later, that's struggling with all sorts of strange teachings being brought into the church. Uh, for instance, the worship of angels, that in order to be protected in this life, you have to say certain prayers or do certain things to keep the angels off your back. And Paul will say, uh, no, Christ is exalted above all of that. Or you have to do this, or you have to follow this, or you have to follow these different uh, legalistic practices that Paul will talk about more in chapters 1 and 2. And Paul will say, no, 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 none of that. The person you need to be concerned about here is Jesus, the head of the church. He is the final authority. What angel can stop Jesus from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish, right? None can. And you can read uh, the book of Hebrews if you want more on the angels. So Christ is the head of the church, and there can only be one, but that's not enough for Paul. When Paul talks about Jesus, he loves to just unpack all of these amazing truths. And I'm barely, I mean, I am barely scratching the surface here this morning. Okay, just barely. Because notice what else Paul says in verse 18. Jesus is the beginning. Not the Bishop of Rome, not anybody else. Jesus is the beginning. He is the one from whom the church comes forth. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, who would you like to be head of the church? Somebody who takes an office 
in a particular city in this world who might serve in that office for 10, 20 years and then dies, and then you have to find another one? Or how about the one who actually conquered death and serves forever as the head of the church? And again, I'm probably going to keep saying this. Read the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews makes this clear. We have this great high priest who entered into the heavenly tabernacles once and for all. We don't need another one down here. We have Christ. And this position is firstborn. This is a title. It's not just that he was the first to conquer death, although he was. When you're the firstborn, you get the double share of the inheritance. Or if you're Christ, you're the only begotten. So all the inheritance is Christ's. But guess what he does with that inheritance? He shares it. He shares it with us. If you're a believer in Christ, you're his brother, you're his sister. You're a child of God, adopted into the family. You get to call God Father. And the Father is very, very generous. We get a portion of that heavenly inheritance, whatever that's going to look like. And I have no idea what that's going to look like. It's going to be glorious. That's all I know. And we get a part in that. And Christ's resurrection guarantees that. How do you know you're going to heaven? The tomb is empty. That's how you know. Jesus conquered death. And if he can conquer death, he can come back again. He can make all things new, just as he promised that he would. And Paul is saying here at the end of verse 18, knowing that Christ is the head of the body, knowing that he is the beginning, he's the firstborn from the dead. Therefore, in everything, he is preeminent. He comes first. Nobody else. Only Christ. He is preeminent. Can you give that position to anybody else here on this earth? Please know that belongs to Christ. And I know we like to sometimes present Jesus as just meek and mild and, you know, cuddly and all of that. And sometimes he is incredibly gracious. But other times he reminds us of who he is. And the scriptures make clear that God will not share his glory with another. Okay, only Christ gets this position. I mean, God would often tell the Israelites, I am a jealous God. That doesn't mean he's a petty God, but he is jealous for his people to worship him alone. So make sure that we're exalting Christ above all else in this church. All right, let's go to our second point then, verse 19. Because if that isn't enough, look what he says here. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's not some of the fullness, not a little bit of the fullness. Jesus is not acting God-like. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. If you do a study of church history and you look at the first four ecumenical councils, I used to have them memorized along with the dates. 
a little shaky on that now, but here's what I know about the first four councils. Their main issues, they've dealt with other ones, but the main issue that they dealt with was, who is Jesus? Is he fully man who became God? Is he fully God who appeared to be a man, but really wasn't? Did he start being a man and then stop being a man? You know, what do we say about Jesus? And thankfully, every council came to the agreement. He is fully God and he is fully man. We can't totally figure that out because he's the only one. We're never going to be fully God. We're never going to be a little bit God. We're going to be fully man, fully woman for all eternity. Only Jesus gets that. And that's what Paul is saying here. It's amazing what we debate sometimes. And all you have to do, now this sounds simplistic, but for me, you just look at verse 19 and say, can it be any clearer? Jesus is fully God. John will talk about this a bit in the opening of his gospel. And I know you're all familiar with the, uh, the prologue to John's gospel. But listen to what he says about Jesus here. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh, you've heard this before, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And then later on, the father, when he speaks audibly from heaven, identifying Jesus, he would say, this is my son with whom I am pleased, well pleased. Listen to him. In Jesus and in Jesus alone, the fullness of God dwells. Now, I've often wondered, uh, what would it have been like, and I bet you've thought this too, if you were a disciple of Jesus or just somebody who lived in the time of Jesus, and maybe you, you came to this realization later, that was God. I was actually talking and walking and eating with the second person of the Trinity. I mean, shouldn't that just blow your mind to think about? Uh, when the disciples sometimes, uh, I always remember this, right? When they were in the boat crossing the Sea of Galilee, and there's the Son of God sleeping in the boat during a storm, and they're upset, they're mad, they're coming to Jesus. Don't you even care, we're about to drown. And Jesus gets up and he commands the wind and the waves to be still. And immediately they're still. What man can do that? What mere man, I should say, can do that? And I wonder, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the apostles lots of questions in heaven. And they're probably going to say, we've heard this so many times before, right? Were you more scared after the storm stopped? And I'll bet they were. It's like, yeah, let's get the storm back. And Jesus, you go back to sleep. Because we now realize how foolish this was. Because we're in a little boat. Jesus is there. And the best you can get is over here. That's not far enough away from the presence of God. That's who Jesus was and is. That is the head of our church. The one in whom the fullness of 
of God dwelled. Let's consider then our last point, verse 20. Only Christ brings reconciliation. Only Christ brings reconciliation. You know the the message of the gospel, of course. And you know that in Adam, we all fell. We are born guilty of sin. There is no innocent child, as sweet as they may look. They're not innocent. They are sinners. And of course, you know, as they grow up, they reveal that very quickly. Right? We are all guilty in the sight of God. All deserving of his displeasure, of his wrath, were enemies of God. Adam and Eve were enemies of God. But what did God do right there in the garden? He gave them a promise. Genesis 3.15. A child would come. A son would be born of the woman. Whose heel would be bruised by the serpent. But that same heel then would bruise or crush the head of the serpent. And God's people in the Old Testament were looking forward to that day. And it's fascinating if you read through the Old Testament and try to remember that because it's easy to get overwhelmed by all the details. But if you read the Old Testament and think, what would it have been like to know that the Messiah was coming and at some point he would arrive? Could this be the one? Is this the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? And they had to keep waiting and waiting and going to the temple to offer sacrifices and wondering when would the Messiah come? Well, when did Jesus come? In the fullness of time. At just the right time, Jesus died for sinners. What an advantage we have over the saints of the Old Testament. We've got Christ accomplishing all that he promised to do. We don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. There's no altar up here where we're slaughtering uh, the sheep to make sure that we can enter into the temple. Christ has already done that for us. He alone is the only one, says Paul, that can reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. It's only through Christ that reconciliation comes, right? We're at enmity with God, but no longer because of what Jesus did. But we have to look at the end of verse 20. Because if you leave that part out, you don't have a gospel. Now, I listen to a, a lot of podcasts, um, mostly good ones. And this year has been an especially important year in the, in the life of Presbyterians, because this is the 100th year anniversary of Christianity and Liberalism, a great book read, uh, written by J. Gresham uh, Machen. And his issue was showing how liberal Protestantism, this is 100 years ago, was not actually preaching the gospel at all. It was an entirely different religion. Even though they were using some of the same words, they would have used reconciliation. They would have used peace because they were all about this social gospel and being better people and transforming society and making America great again. This is before Trump even stole that. They were already doing that or trying to do that. 
but they had a gospel without the cross, and that's no gospel, right? The only way we can have peace with God, the only way we can be reconciled is by peace or by the peace through the blood shed by Jesus on the cross. If you take the cross out, you don't have a gospel. You just have some man-centered plan to try to improve this planet. And you know what happens every time you try to improve anything? At best, it lasts for a short time, and then it starts to wear down again. That's the problem, right, with the fallen world. The only way we can come to the Father is through the Son, and it's through the shed blood of Jesus offered on the cross. Because the law in Deuteronomy said, Cursed is the one who is hung on a tree. Jesus was the one who was hung on the cross to take the curse of sin upon himself. The Bishop of Rome didn't do that. This guy up here did not do that. No great uh, figure in church history did that. Only Christ did that. Who do you want as head of you, of the church? I'll take the one who actually conquered death. I'll take the one who made salvation possible and actual by dying on the cross for his people. That's why the, uh, uh, the apostles would say, and this is Peter, great old Peter. We all know Peter. Sometimes he said things he shouldn't have said, but other times, man, he got it right. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and I'm paraphrasing, but he, to the same authorities that had Jesus arrested and handed over, Peter said, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's the name of Jesus. Remember, they were told, all right, we'll let you go. You guys are kind of popular with the crowd, but just stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Acts 4 is a great passage. They weren't told to stop preaching. You can go ahead and preach all you want. Just don't say the name of Jesus. Peter's like, nope, sorry. You can't preach without the name of Jesus. That's one thing I want to encourage uh, you all as a congregation, whatever struggles you're going through, here's what I know about this church. You hear the name of Jesus. Now, don't raise your hand on this. I'll raise mine, though. I've gone to a few services in my time. I remember even going to an Easter service growing up, and Jesus wasn't talked about. It's like, why am I here? I could be sleeping in this morning, right? I was sleeping really well this morning, by the way. Yeah. No, there's no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. And that blood that Jesus sheds, I know I said this before in the earlier service, but that blood is precious. It's more precious than anything else here on earth because this is blood that makes peace with God possible. So who is head of the church? Jesus is, and Jesus alone. What qualifies Jesus to be head of the church? Well, he created the church. He died for the church. He purchased the church with his blood. He conquered sin and death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he's ruling over all, even now. And then he's coming back for the church. He is the head of the church 
and there is no other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did all of this for your people. We thank you that you took on flesh. You became a servant. You became the suffering servant who was willing to undergo the humiliation and the pain of the cross so that we might have life. But we thank you that the grave could not hold you. As the scriptures say, you have not allowed your Holy One to see corruption. So on the third day, you rose from the dead. Death has been conquered. Sin has been conquered. Satan has been conquered. And we look forward to that great day, Lord Jesus, when you return. May it be soon. Thank you, Lord. And I pray again that if there are any here this morning who do not know Christ, that this would be the day of salvation for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.